Okay, this is Gary Parrish again and uh, from CBSSports.com again. And let me uh, welcome you back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, which is now, of course, brought to you uh, by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to Squarespace.com slash CBS Sports and use the offer code FUN. That's FUN at Squarespace.com slash CBS Sports. Okay, let's get into it. My guest today is a former All-American college basketball player, 10-year NBA veteran who uh, made the All-Star Game in 2002 as a member of the Minnesota Timberwolves. These days, of course, he's an analyst at both the uh, NBA and college level. You see him all the time on the CBS Sports Network and on CBS Sports. It's my pal Wally Zerbiak. Wally, how you doing, man? I'm doing terrific. I'll tell you, it's that time of year. Uh, really looking forward to the NCAA tournament. March Madness is here, and I'm really excited. Excited, and you're a 37-year-old man excited now. Happy birthday, by the way. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you know, March 5th, uh, not a better month to have a birthday, I'll tell you. I <laughs> uh, got a lot of well wishes and birthday wishes. It's been a pretty special birthday, and um, really looking forward to the month of March. It's the most fun month as far as being a college basketball fan. It really is. So the first thing I want to talk to you about, and there's a ton of stuff, because I think you have – um, a unique perspective because you're somebody who has played at the NBA level and, and starred at the NBA level, but also been a college star, but also now you you watch the college game very closely because of your job. And, and one of the things that I get asked about all the time is Doug McDermott as A, a college player, but also B, as a, as a pro player. And I, I don't know that there's anybody uh, more qualified to speak uh, about him in this regard than you, if only because... Um, you and I have talked about this before, but I actually went and looked it up. His final two years of college, Doug McDermott's, and your final two years of college, the numbers are remarkably similar. Your final two years of college, 24.3 points, 8.2 rebounds, shot 52% from the field and 41% from three. His final two years of college, Doug McDermott, 24.9 points, 7.5 rebounds, 53% from the field, 46% from three. I don't want to say you guys were the same players, but you had similar um, similar averages in, in very key categories. So um, let me get your opinion first on what you think Doug McDermott is going to be at the professional level, given what you know it takes to succeed at the professional level. Well, I think he's going to do very well. And I see, I know this might, might sound funny, might sound weird, but I see a lot of my game in his game. Yeah. You know, we're very similar players, same size, same type of skill set. Um, you know, his ability to just, all he needs is a little bit of airspace to get his jump shot off and he's money in the bank. And, and that was my strength too. I was a high percentage efficient shooter. And that really translates well to the NBA because over the course of 82 games, you need to be consistent. You can't have, you know, two good games, three bad games, three good games, two, uh, three, uh, two bad games. You can't be all over the place. You need to be consistent. And that's why I look at percentages and what guys shoot in college. And his percentages are off the charts. That was a big strength of mine. Through my, throughout my NBA career, I was almost a 49% field goal shooter, 41% three-point shooter, and 86% um, free throw shooter And over the course of 10 years. So consistency was my motto. And I think that's why I was able to be successful at that level because Coaches, GMs at the NBA level, they want a guy they can count on night in and night out. They want to know what they're going to get, rely on a guy, whether it's home, on the road, whether it's a big game, whether it's not a big game, whether there's a lot of people in the crowd or there's not. 
that a guy's going to be pretty consistent. And I think that's really what Doug McDermott brings. You know, I think he's a lot more athletic than people give him credit for. The difference, I think, in our games, especially back in college, is when you look at my body frame, we're about the same height. I was maybe 10 pounds heavier. I was really strong coming out of college. You know, I put a lot of time in the weight room. You know, we did a lot of Olympic lifts back in Miami of Ohio, and I really, really improved my athleticism. So maybe I was a little bit more athletic um, back coming out of college, but he still has great athleticism. He's got quick feet, moves laterally very well. He's got he's always in constant motion without the ball. Um, I think maybe my face-up game might have been a little bit more polished at this time. I had the ability to, when I put the ball on the floor, I was I was pretty strong, broad, wide shoulders, and I could seal people off and really get to the basket and finish. Whereas I think his post game is a lot more polished than mine was back, um, you know, coming out of college my senior year. He's got a, a lefty arsenal. He's got an up and under arsenal. He's almost like got Kevin McHale footwork, even though he's not 6'10 with long arms. He's 6'8 with long arms. He's got that type of post game, so I think that'll translate well. I, th- I just think the big question for him is going to be getting in the right system, getting with a coach that believes in him, and you know, f- f- figuring out a way to defend his position. I, I think the-, the three position, which he's going to have to be in the NBA, it's a tough position. You're looking at going up against LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Kevin Durant, those types of players, and um, it's not easy to defend those guys. Obviously, they're some of the best basketball players in the world. I just think his ability to stretch the floor, play some four at that level, if he can defend and rebound for uh, you know a four man, he would be a nightmare to guard on the offensive end of the floor. You bring up you know, a, with a pick. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point. I wanted to stop you real quick uh, about getting with a coach who believes in him because so often yep. when you ask people who are skeptics of what Doug might be at the NBA level, and listen, I, I, I watch the Grizzlies every night because of where I live. They would kill for a mm-hmm. 6'8 guy who could stand in the corner and knock down threes. So if he's nothing sure. more than that, he's going to make $7 right. million dollars a year just being that. I think he can be more. I know you think he can be more. But when you talk to people – they say, okay, well, yeah, but who's who's he going to guard? And clearly, like you know, I'm not I'm not stupid. I understand that guarding threes at the pro level uh, can be very difficult. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, uh, Paul George, so on and so forth. Uh, but but the, you know, at the NBA level, there are a ton of guys right now who have defensive deficiencies. Like uh, uh, Tyson Chandler was just quoted about Kevin Love saying he can't play defense, and so. Um, that may or may not be true, but there's nobody who wouldn't want Kevin Love on your basketball team. And so I think if you can find the coach, and you would know this better than I because you've spent time in that league, how important is it for him to find a coach who is willing to deal with maybe a shortcoming here or there to 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 get all of the positive things at the offensive end that Doug McDermott can presumably get? How important is it to, for him to have a coach who, like you said, just believes in him and is willing to deal with, with some bad stuff to get all the good stuff? The, 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 you, you said it right there. You hit the nail on the head. And, and here, here's always been my philosophy with coaches. The great coaches at any level, they get you to play defense as a team. And I think Doug McDermott is a really smart basketball player. I think he has a high basketball IQ. So he's going to be the type of guy, and this is why I was able to defend at the NBA level and be a good team defender. I was always in the right spot. You know, defending in the NBA is all about being in the right spot, knowing your rotations, being on a string with your teammates. And I think he'll be able to, he'll be capable to pick that up. You look at a guy like, 
Mike, uh, Tom Thibodeau, right. what he gets out of players that weren't known as defenders. And then he gets them in their system, and he gets the team to play a great team defensive concept, and they look like much better defenders. I think San Antonio does the same thing. Coaching, I think, brings out the best in you on the defensive end of the floor. On offense, uh, on the other hand, he doesn't need to be coached. Right. He's got all the skills. He works on his game. He's a complete player. He can put it on the floor. He can shoot it from outside. On the offensive end, you just got to space the floor, move the ball, you know, get him open looks, have a guy that can draw double teams, and he's going to be fine on the offensive end. So you, you, you said it exactly right. Defensively, he's got to get in the right system. And, you know, I was fortunate to play with for great defensive coaches. And, and, and Doc Rivers, Mike Brown, those guys were really, really detail-oriented when it came to watching film. We constantly went over being on the right spots, on the floor, wherever the ball was. And that made me a much better defender, um, not only one-on-one, but also team defender, which helped me at that next level. And I think if he finds that, he'll be fine. Is Creighton a legitimate Final Four threat? Are they so good offensively that as a team, they're not very good defensively as a team, but are they so good offensively that they're going to give themselves a shot to maybe, I don't want to even say get hot, because they don't have to get hot to shoot it well. They shoot it well no matter what. Um, are they a real threat to get to, to, get to Dallas and, and, and participate in that, in that four-team four event? I th- I really think so. I really do. Um, I-, I think lately they've started to have to rely on Doug McDermott a little bit too much, sure. which isn't good. And, you know, he, it, Ethan Roggy just hasn't been the same, you know, the last few games. And that goes both ways. It's not on Ethan Roggy. He's the type of guy who he needs to get into the rhythm on the offensive end of the floor. He needs to be, you know, a, a little bit more of a volume shooter because it's not easy to take six shots and, you know, get yourself into a rhythm and get yourself going. So it's kind of a catch-22 because Doug McDermott, I've been in this situation and star players have, they look at the scoreboard and they say, okay, I'm going to defer to my teammates in the first 10 minutes of the game. We'll see how the game goes. But when he looks up at the scoreboard and his teammates are knocking down shots and he's down 10 points, he's got to start getting aggressive. I think that's what we saw in this past Georgetown game where he kind of had to put the pedal to the metal to try to get his team back into the game. But I'd like to see Creighton, in order to make the Final Four, have some more guys step up, especially early in the game, so the defense can't key in on Doug McDermott as much as they have of late. Because when they had made those runs, you know, when they had those games against Villanova, they showed the capability of not only to score against anyone, but their defense was looking pretty good for most of the year. Right now, I just think they're kind of hitting that downtime where they're ready to get to the NCAA tournament, and then I think they'll turn it on again. Uh, back to Doug real quickly, and then we'll move on. Um, how impressive is it to you that he's able to post these numbers while being also like you know facing double teams and sometimes triple teams? You went through this um, – you know, if not most of your college career, certainly in your last year at Miami, Ohio, where you were just draped with guys nonstop. How impressive is it that Doug's able to do this when, when so clearly he's the one thing other teams are trying to take away, but they just can't? It's very impressive. And that was one of the toughest years of my career, my senior year in college, because you said it, defenses were completely keyed in on me playing me really physically, and I think that's why I tried to get really strong from my junior and senior year, because the physicality that the teams used to try to knock me off my spots, to try to keep the ball out of my hands, is something that I really had to combat by getting stronger. And one thing I'd, I will say about Doug McDermott's you know, Creighton team, I love the way his dad's philosophy is on the offensive end of the floor. 
he is in constant motion. He gets maybe four, three, four picks every single time down the floor. They run a really, really good offense, a lot of pro sets. They try to push pace into the game because it's obvious. When you have a great offensive team and a really good score, you might as well get more possessions into the game. And I think his dad does a great job of pushing the pace, attacking, and being aggressive. But he's certainly handled everything that's been thrown at him. He handles multiple defenders on a given night, small guys, tall guys. You know, he has the ability to take small guys down low and big guys outside. And that's why I think he's had such success. And believe me, it's not easy to do when you're the first guy on that scouting report every night. You know, you were a part of, uh, you know, an, obviously an All-American, a, a terrific pro, and a part of, of some really good basketball teams, but outside of the power conference structure uh, that, that people usually pay attention to. Um, I, I bring that up because Wichita State is now operating outside of the normal power structure, and there are still skeptics. Uh, of of Wichita State. How would Ron Baker be in the Big 12? How would Fred Van Vliet be in the Big 10? How would Wichita State be if they had to play in the ACC? Uh, How frustrating is that, if you can go back to your college years, when people are either questioning A, you, or B, your team, because you don't happen to play in one of the big, big conferences? Use it as motivation. You really do. And I think, especially when I was – when, when, when I was playing in 99 in the MAC, the MAC was a pretty strong conference. We were rated around the 10th best conference in the country, so we were right on the cusp of being one of those top 10 conferences. They've fallen off a little bit now, but my, my, my view was always that from one, the, one, the one spot to the four spot, there's not much difference right. in mid-majors compared to majors. The five spot is where you get some difference. Normally, mid-majors don't have a 6'10 monster like a Willie Cauley-Stein or, you know, like a Patrick Young type player. It's just a real, or like a Joel Embiid. Sure. Normally, that's the matchup advantage. A lot of times, there are a lot of good guards in mid-majors that you don't hear a lot from. And that's what we found when we made the NCAA tournament. I was playing the four in college. Our five-man was 6'5". When we ran into Kentucky, we lost in the Sweet 16 because their front line went 7 feet, 6'10". So that height difference, I think, is a major difference. Now, you look at Wichita State, they have some big guys in Lufiel and um, Clay Anthony Early. So they can definitely handle their size down low. And I put their guards up against any guards in the country, and they proved it last year the way they played. I mean, people forget they had Louisville down uh, you know, in the uh, Final Four in, in, in by double digits in the second half. So. Um, and it's pretty much the same team. You take off away Malcolm Armstead and Carl Hall, who were key cogs in that team, but definitely guys that I think you know new guys have stepped in and kind of filled those voids and filled those roles. I think this team is very capable of a big-time run. We saw Butler, a mid-major team, make the national championship two years in a row. So Wichita State can definitely pull that off. It's interesting the point you make about how there's not much difference between the one, twos, threes, and fours, but it's the fives in the middle where there's an obvious difference between the high majors and the low majors. I think people would say the same thing about college football. You can find quarterbacks anywhere. You can find running backs anywhere, receivers anywhere. The big difference is on the offensive line and the defensive line. That's what separates sure. Alabama from, you know, say some Mac school. But um, it's funny. I, I was talking to Jay Wright about this one time, and we sort of stumbled into the conversation, but he was 
was talking about his four-guard lineup that he was using. And I said, when did you decide to start playing a four-guard lineup? He said, when I was the head coach at Hofstra. Because I could go find a bunch of six-two guards, but I can't go find a six-eleven <laughs> center. So, so what? what go. Yeah. So go. I'll go. I'll go play four six-two guards. And so it's a. It's exactly right. That's what you you see really good guards, and you can look at all American teams and 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 sort of you know, play this out. You'll see all really good guards, pro guards, Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum at schools all over the country. But rarely do you find a legitimate 6'10", 6'11", 7-foot pro big outside of the power structure because there's so few of them and they end up at the schools um, that you would think that they usually would end up in. Okay, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is um, a guy you used to play with in the NBA, and that's uh, Fred Hoiberg, who's now obviously the head coach at Iowa State. You've known Freddie for a long time, and, and, and you know him well. Are you surprised that he's been able to have this type of success at Iowa State, given that he entered college basketball with zero head coaching experience and is now considered, uh, I think, reasonably one of the stars of the sport? I think he's done a great job, and and I'm I'm really not surprised. And now uh, it's very impressive to not have any, you know, previous experience and to come out and do as good of a job as he has done. But having played with him for a few years in Minnesota, he is a really smart basketball mind, and he's taken a lot from different guys. He got he's he's played under under Larry Bird. Uh, he played for Kevin McHale. Uh, he's played for a, a lot uh, Tim Floyd. So he's played for a lot of really good coaches and I think what makes Freddie such a good coach is he gets along with all his players and he's great relationship wise and his nickname is the mayor because everyone loves him and there's a reason why because he he can sit down and talk to absolutely anyone and I think that's what you see with his players they really love playing for him they can identify with him the fact that he was such a great player in college and in the NBA and then he brings a system and a mindset that's really refreshing to college basketball. I think it's fun to watch. I think if you're a player, you should want to go play in that system because it's going to make you look like a really good basketball player and it's going to maximize your skills, really play to your strength. I think you see a guy like DeAndre Kane. You know, he was a pretty good player at Marshall. Sure. You know, a little bit inconsistent shooting percentage-wise. He goes to Iowa State. He becomes possible Big 12 player of the year and becomes a lot more consistent player, a lot better shooter. And I think that's a credit to Freddie, his player development, and the coaching job he's done with him and with that team. So I think he's a really uh, he's a bright, young, shining star at the collegiate level as a coach and a guy that a lot of kids, if they have aspirations, you know, to get better in college and to play at the next level, um, should go play for because he's going to make you look really good and get you better. Now, Iowa State fans always get upset when I start talking about Fred Hoiberg in the NBA, but uh, you know that <laughs> seems to be where his career is headed at some point. I'm not saying he's going to be there this time next year, but eventually, like from talking to NBA people, he's going to, and I know he's already had opportunities, but he's going to year in and year out have opportunities to be an NBA head coach. My guess is at some point he will jump. Um, let me ask you this, knowing what you know about college basketball coaches and knowing uh, what it takes to succeed as an NBA coach, who, who else stands out to you as somebody who could reasonably make the jump from college to the pros the way Brad Stevens has made the jump from college to the pros? <clears throat> um, I think I always thought a guy like Billy Donovan yeah. could, could make the move if he wanted, but he's just had, he's done such a good job at Florida and know had such a good situation there that he he hasn't wanted and it's a risk when you go to the NBA you have to have the right players you have to have the right situation and 
and, and you have to have that right relationship and mix with your players. And because the NBA, it's you know you you more got to coach by bringing them along as a system, but you almost got to you know not be too hands on. I think that's the key to NBA coaching. Obviously, these guys are professionals; they're men. They know how to play the game, and you've got to just set a framework and culture, I think, um, and have a relationship with the guys in order to have them buy in and make them succeed. And that's what I think would make Freddie, you know, so good because he has a very simple philosophy. You know, he attacks mismatches, and he's going to really talk to guys and see what they're what they want out of the season, what they want out of their careers, and that's. That's what you need to do at the NBA level. You have to have that type of relationship with your players where you have to coach them, but you also have to let them be who they are and who they want to be in order to be successful at that level. What do you make of coaching behavior at the college level? I was talking to somebody the other day, and this has all come you know, up as a topic of conversation in recent weeks. First, I think, because of Jim Beheim running onto the court and cussing out a referee, and then Mick Cronin <laughs> yeah. and Teddy Valentine getting into it um, last weekend in a pretty visible way um, where they actually were like nose-to-nose, almost like a, two guys about to get into a bar fight. And I, you know, I, I sit courtside at NBA games one night and then at college games the next. You watch... Uh, like I watch, the NBA and the college game on a night-in and night basis. And it's striking to me how different NBA coaches are with officials than college coaches are with officials. Is Does something need to be done about the way college coaches uh, consistently berate referees, almost on a possession-by-possession basis? Is that something that needs to be addressed? I think so. You know, officials are human, and I've always thought the best officials are the ones that you can call over and have a civil conversation with. If I disagreed with a call that was made on me, I would walk over to them. I would say, you know, what did I do there? I thought I did this. I didn't think I did this. They would explain what I did, and it would be an amicable, civil relationship. I, I, I wasn't a big yeller and screamer, technical type guy. Certain coaches believe that that influenced officials, and they could be right. right. You know, officials are only human. Um, you don't know what's going through their mindset. Some officials take the opposite approach. If you're going to berate me and go at me, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So it goes both ways. But you're right about the way some coaches. I'm not. I'm not going to say all. <laughs> right. You know, talk to officials and even the way they talk to their players. Right. I'm a big observant of that. You never see, rarely, maybe Greg Popovich every once in a while, really undressing. You know, a professional player. You rarely see that in the NBA. And at times you see a pretty derogatory type, um, you know, talk down or uh, undressing sure. at the collegiate level. Maybe that's because they're kids. Maybe because they're a little bit more immature. Maybe because they're doing things that, you know, professionals don't do. I don't know. But I just know in general, um, you don't normally see a guy like Freddie Hoiberg doing that. I don't think you see a guy like Billy Donovan doing that. When he does do that, you see his players respond because it's not like he's doing it every game, every possession. When he does it, I think his players know he means business. So I just feel like you can treat a guy humanely and you don't have to really, uh, you know, cuss him out or yell him out or, or, or undress him in order to get your point across as a, as a coach. If the tournament started tomorrow, who would you pick as your favorite to win the whole thing? Well, that's tough. I, I think I have to go Florida yeah. just because you're seeing all these teams that are kind of floundering and you don't know what they're really playing for. 
Now, I'm like you. I think talent wins. Sure. And I think a team like Kansas would be my second pick because yeah. of how much talent they have. But I think experience wins, too. And, you know, when those freshmen get in the – in the um, you know in a tightly contested battle with a with pressure cookers on and the and heat's ratcheted up at the end of the game, how are they going to handle that in a lose and go home type environment? Um, Florida is the team though that doesn't have any projected NBA draft draft picks, first or second round, which is mind boggling to me. There's got to be someone that can play in the league on one of those teams, <laughs> right. on that team. So well, that's a different story, but. Florida would be my pick. It is funny. Like, they're the Las Vegas favorite right now as well. But typically, and I did the research on this a few years back. And it, Who is it, the Las Vegas favorite? It is Florida. It's Florida right now. And yeah. I, I think okay. Kansas is right behind Florida. So you got it pegged just like mm-hmm. Vegas. But typically, I did the research on this. To win a, a, a national championship, like we've seen in recent years, anybody can get to a, a Final Four. Not anybody, but right. a lot of you can get there with a lot of different looking rosters. But to win the whole thing, you typically got to have – pros you got to have some nba guys yep. and t- it usually takes three like there are it, it's it's very rare and i'm not talking about like in the past decade i'm talking about for the past 40 years it is very rare to win a national championship unless you have at least three nba players on your roster one of the only teams that actually did it was 2003 syracuse so what does that tell you you better have somebody as good as carmelo uh, uh and 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 one other pro i think that had hakeem warwick and carmelo what about duke 2011 that's the what that's the other recent example that, Singler, that that's, yeah that's that, pretty much it they had singler yeah they had a bunch of good guys no real great ones that is the other right. that that they are an exception to the rule that's a good call but it's like it's 2003 yeah. syracuse it's 2011 duke for the most part you need pros and you look at this florida roster and they they've got a lot of good players a lot of experienced players but they don't yeah. have the pros that you usually look for and so it's interesting that they've had they've put together this type of season where they're 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 on the verge of being 18 and 0 in the SEC and they haven't lost with their full, full complement of players how, how much you know how much does does that fall on Billy Donovan as as a guy who can develop guys and and really turn a roster that doesn't look like a whole bunch on paper into what it seems you know through March 6 to be the best team in the country and it speaks to the world. I think he's done a great coaching job. I just think his demeanor, the way he handles the players, I think the way the guys buy in. And I think, you know, Michael Frazier went 11 for 18 yeah. three point line at 37 points. And that you look at the box score, the fact that none of the other guys really cared that they weren't getting, you know, their averages, so to speak. And they were just looking for him and to milk the hot hand. That's a rare thing, you know, having been on a team basketball dynamic, normally, um, you know, obviously you want to go to the hot hand and you want to milk the hot hand, but as unselfish as that team is and the way they put team first and really don't care who gets the credit and who gets the accolades, the credit for the job he's done. And he's also, you know, I used to go to the Rick Pitino basketball camp here on Long Island as a kid, and he, he coached there, Rick Pitino coached there. They are brilliant player development-wise as far as improving players when he gets his hands on them as freshmen. And I played for Herb Sendek, who was a Pitino disciple, and the individual instruction, the individual workouts are intense. They really are. And your game goes to a different level. If the player that you are as a freshman, when you leave Florida, you're going to be twofold better 
after those type of individual workouts. And um, that's where I got a lot better in college, and that's where I think you're seeing a lot of improvement in a lot of his players. That's really interesting. Uh, remember, you're listening to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, which is now brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. You know, Squarespace is constantly improving its platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They've got uh, beautiful designs for you to start with and all of the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. Squarespace, of course, it's easy to use, but they still have an amazing support team that's available 24-7, and the whole thing just starts at $8 a month. So you can start a free trial with no credit card required, uh, which means you can start building your website today. When you decide to sign up, make sure to do this. Uh, use the offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. All right, let's finish up here, Wally, with three things that um, I think we're both looking forward to this weekend. It's brought to you by Squarespace. Number one, um, it's going to be a game that's on the CBS Sports Network, New Mexico, uh, uh, New Mexico at San Diego State to, de- to decide the Mountain West Conference Championship. You and I get to see these teams a lot because um, we're sometimes in studio while they're playing on our network. Um, how big is this, um, not only for the Mountain West, but, but for New Mexico and for San Diego State, Saturday night deciding a regular season conference championship? It's going to be tremendous, and I really, I really like watching the Mountain West Conference. I think it's a great style of play. I think there are a lot of underrated teams out there, and you know, obviously, New, uh, New Mexico and San Diego State are the best for that. New Mexico beat San Diego State on their home court. This is for all the marbles. You really look at matchups and you dissect those matchups, but in the end, I just think San Diego State having that game on their home court gives them that little bit of edge to uh, to win the Mountain West title. Um, you know, New Mexico has star power. Defending Mountain West Player of the Year and, and Kendall Williams, probably this year's Player of the Year, and Cameron Barristow. And I, I think the X factor is Alex Kirk. Um, you know, his ability to go inside, to go outside, he's not the fleetest of foot. And um, San Diego State is a very athletic, quick team. And they can switch a lot of stuff, but he is the X factor. If he can knock down outside shots, he can cause a lot of problems for San Diego State. And they're switching. They're not going to be able to load up on Bear Snow and Kendall Williams. And I'm really excited for that matchup. I think it's going to be a, a one for the ages. I love the way the Mountain West set it up, where it's the last game of the season. Um, and it means so much, and I'm looking forward to tuning in on CBS Sports Network. No, it's going to be terrific, and I think you and I are on the same page here. If you played this game back at the pit, I'd pick New Mexico. If you played it on a neutral, mm-hmm. I might pick New Mexico, but at San Me Diego too. State. Yeah, yep. right, but at San Diego State, it yep. just seems like that's, a that's a, as we know, a very tough place to go win. The second thing I want to get to, um, Kentucky at Florida. We've talked about Florida. Let's talk about Kentucky for a moment. This is a CBS game. It's to see if Florida can uh, go undefeated in SEC play, become the first ever team to be 18-0 and in the SEC. I, I think it's probably a more important game for Kentucky because they need another quality win and uh, because they only have two top 50 wins at this point. What do you make of the Kentucky Wildcats being preseason number one and now barely being ranked at all with four losses outside of the top 50 and just two wins inside of it? Tough to get consistency out of freshmen. Yeah. Uh, as talented as that recruiting class was, I think they were a little bit overhyped. Now we've seen a, a, a big set of games, and I look at those. I think Julius Randle's great. I think he's a beast. I think they need to get him the ball more. But I think there's a little bit of dysfunction on that team just because I look at a guy like Alex Boitris, who averaged 11.6 boards, fairly high percentage three-point shooter last year, high percentage two-point shooter. 
and he's not even playing very much. Right. And that's a situation where if I was Alex, I would be looking around like, wait a second. And that's why I think you get guys transferring, because you get recruited over. All of a sudden, you have a great freshman year. You think you're going to build on that and be a key cog as, as a sophomore. And then you take a step back on your role in the team. It's got to be tough for him to deal with. And then on top of it, you see the inconsistencies that some of those freshmen are playing with. I think I think that, that, that there's a little bit of wondering what's going on as far as roles and as far as a, a, a few things go on um, going on on that team. And that's why you see the inconsistency and you see the dysfunction at times with as much talent as they have. You know, the Harrison twins, how good are they? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're good, but they're not great. You know, um, James Young, very inconsistent, shooting the ball. He's only a freshman, but, you know, sky's the limit. But he's got to improve his consistency and become a higher percentage shooter. Like I said, I'm a big consistent guy and a, and a high percentage guy. And then Willie Cauley-Stein has a lot to, to work with, and they need to get Randall the ball more, in my opinion. They need to play through him. He's not getting 15 shot attempts per game. Coach should be saying something because um, he's going to make everyone else better, and he's going to, you know, allow the other guys to get better looks at the basket. So Kentucky has some things to work on. I think Coach Calipari is a great coach, and he can really coach defense. And we'll see if that team can figure it out. Although it's getting pretty late right now. And the third thing I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go is uh, SMU at Memphis this weekend. And I don't care so much about the game, although it is an interesting matchup between top twenty-five teams. I bring it up only because you played against Larry Brown at the NBA level. Uh, you know about Larry Brown a- as a coach. Are you surprised at all that he's had this type of success this early at a traditionally irrelevant basketball program? And beyond that, uh, just you know your perspective of Larry Brown is he really the the brilliant basketball mind that that people suggest that he is I think so and I actually played for him in the 99 you played for him okay yeah it was basically the dream team and three three upcoming rookies myself Elton Brand and Richard Hamilton so Uh. I got a chance to be coached by him and you know he's he's not a Hall of Fame coach (laughs) for for, for, for a reason, because he's a great coach. And that's why he is in the Hall of Fame. And I, I think what was important for him was the recruiting job he's done, getting Nick Moore to transfer from Illinois State, getting some you know McDonald's All-Americans. And, and because you're, as a coach, you're only really as good as your players. And he's done a good job recruiting and selling SMU and using the new facility, Moody Coliseum, to, to attract players. And then once he's gotten his hands on some talent, he really knows how to teach. He's a great teacher. He, he, he teaches the game the right way. I think he, he really teaches the team concept, and he likes when not just one guy dominates the ball, one guy, not just when one guy dominates scoring. He, like when, he likes when a team can do it from all five positions. Obviously, he's a great defensive coach, and that's always been his M.O. And I think in order to be a great coach, you've got to be able to coach on the defensive end of the floor. But it's pretty impressive what he's done at his age, um, you know, uh, uh, assembling and building the program that he's done, um, it, it's pretty good to see. 
No, it's been terrific. All right, well, listen, I've kept you long enough. For folks who want to see Wally Zerbeck, going to be in studio uh, tonight over at the CBS Sports Network. And uh, let me thank you for being here. I know how busy you are, man. I really appreciate it. Let me thank everybody else for listening to the podcast, for uh, reading what I write, for following us on uh, Twitter. Wally Ball, at Wally Ball, is where you can find Wally Zerbiak on Twitter. I, of course, is at, uh, at Gary Parish CBS. So remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast over on iTunes. Make sure you do that. It's the quick way uh, to get each and every episode every single week and either way I'm going to talk to you again on Monday I think I'll be in St. Louis it'll be after the Missouri Valley Conference Championship game probably after uh, Wichita State has just completed their 34-0 record so we'll touch on that with Matt Norlander and Jeff Borzillo have a nice weekend I'll talk to you real soon